You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I think you're full of, I think I'm full of, shit, I was so full of, yeah, I was so full of, I think I'm full of, I think you're full of, I think we're full of, shit. Hello everyone and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me, as always, is the handsomest man in the room, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Very good, Mark. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I am indeed, as Walker intimated, Mark Bigney. I will be your co-host today, and we are going to mix things up, and we're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Aurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, and it was another bunker crop of such things. Is that the term? No, bumper crop. Bumper crop. Because you load it into your, your pickup truck that the you bumper have. Bumper cars. <laughs> yeah, you, you take the bumper cars out yes. into the field, Just right? So, yes. And you harvest the, 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 the produce. Well, it's the new. Like, they used to use mills. Yeah. Right? Now they use bumper cars. You ride around the wheat fields and it just... Is that why carnivals always have the, bumper... They, they repurpose the agriculture... the vacuums come and vacuum up all the flour that's okay. out in the field now. This but presumably once you put the children in the bumper cars, you take out the rotating blades. That's right. Okay. Except for the high-impact bumper cars, of course. Of course. Anyway, then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic... Our topic this week is our top 10 revisited under the general backdrop of Golden Age? Golden Age. More on that later. Golden Age? More on that later. Walker has some thoughts, and uh, so do I. It's going to get a little philosophical, ladies and gentlemen, but Walker has encouraged me for once to do this, so there's no holding back. So, Walker, what did we review last year? Exactly one year ago, Mark, we reviewed a game by Martin Wallace called Anno 1800. This was put out by Cosmos Games. And we reviewed it purely in its digital fashion. At the time, we didn't have access to the physical version because it had been released in Europe substantially prior to its distribution in North America. Since then, my understanding is that you acquired a physical copy. I did. And then I think it went out to a listener. Yes. (laughs) I have not thought about or played Anno 1800 since we reviewed it. 
looking at it as we were going to do the Aurus, though, I did, you know, spare a thought of, oh, the, the general lattice work of the, the, the upgrades, getting A to get B to get C was kind of okay, but I regret not having played it. Not at all. Not at all. It was fine. It was it was one of those Euro games that is a hardcore hobbyist that come and go and add to the general texture of your life, but in no way warrants going out of your way to try. Nothing super stood out for sure. Well, that was quick. <laughs> Anno 1800. Anno 1800, what do you want? Like, And I can't remember, have you played any of the video games upon which this is nominally based? No, zero. Yeah, my understanding is the connection is very, very tenuous. I haven't played any of those games either. So... That was not really Anno 1800 by Martin Wallace, released in 2020. If someone proposes it, eh, it might yeah. be worth a shot or yeah. two, but... No, and when, when I did get the physical copy, we played it quite a bit. There was a, a core group that... W- oh, that I didn't it. know. I never played your physical copy. Yeah. I, oh, okay. Alpha Gamer and, and the boys really enjoyed it, so we played it several times. Okay. Well, that is valuable information. Why were you holding out on this, Walker? Because it's only on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> Now, on to the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Let's get this out of the way, Mark. Uh, Yucatan. This is by Madagot Games. It is by the same designer of Kemet. Namely, Guillaume Montillage, yes. And I'm wondering if if that was a one-hit wonder. (laughs) So we can start with the rulebook, which was terrible. It it had many problems, one of which it used some very odd w- choice of words. I think it was like the translation. They could have used multiple words and they chose the worst one possible. Yes. There were also multiple instances of untranslated words. I will say, though, that a lot of the complaints that I've heard and some of the complaints that you've had and indeed some of the complaints that other people at the group had about the rulebook struck me as perhaps overblown, not because I disagree with the substance of the critique, but because I come from a rather different perspective. And I mean this in all sincerity. It's going to sound like I'm being flipped, but I'm not. Badly translated English from French is like a second language to me. So when I was reading the rulebook, I could I could see how they could get to those formulations, and I had next to no difficulty parsing the broken language. I've had conversations like that many times over the course of my life. It's something I'm very familiar with. I've been reading badly translated French rulebooks in this hobby for a while, and so actually reading the book was fine. Organizationally, it was still subpar. In terms of how it decided to present the information, it was still subpar. But in terms of the overall language, I can completely see why somebody who doesn't speak French would find it borderline impenetrable. I found it vastly easier to process. Yeah, the the generalization of the rulebook was not bad, but there's two key parts of the game. One, which is combat. Two, which is taking prisoners. Combat happens so often that there are ties. There are many special powers and items and all sorts of things in the game that use the word tied to your leader. Yes. Use the word tied. So it's very not obvious. Is it talking about being the tied tied? troop is what it often says. Does that mean being tied in, in, in the fight? It does not. The other part is about, uh, the prisoners. Yes. This, and that text is repeated several times, sometimes with redundant information and sometimes without, leading one to perhaps wonder, wait, is this a special case? No, no, no. They were just being lazy that time. It's true. And they use the word made. So they want to make sure in the rule book, they very specific, specifically say that you will never be denied a prisoner. You'll always take it from, from the, the stash or, you know, or the other player. So it can be 
thought that when they say make, it means you are taking it from the neither and you're making a prisoner for, as for opposed what it, to taking it from your opponent. For what it's worth, uh, it's actually been clarified online that you can run out of prisoner opportunities. It was oh, clarified really? by the designer. Oh. There is, There have been the process of clarifications by the designer and by the publisher. There is a fan-made version of the rulebook that is vastly better. Still a little bit wonky in places. Some of the procedures, Walker's exactly right. The battle resolution procedure is in, is one of those areas where it is presented in a vastly more cumbersome way than it needs to be. And it's also the case that the end of, end of round resolution sequence, which is very important because that's how you score points, is also phrased in a very cumbersome and roundabout way, making some things unclear. So all the presentation issues out of the way... What did you have to think of the game, Walker? Because we played mostly correctly, and the errors that we did were pretty certain don't really impact the overall thrust of I things. Agree, I agree with that. And I really, I would listen to all the, the problems people were having in the rule book, and I really hoped that we could we'd get by that and there would be a game there. And, I, <laughs> and unfortunately, I just don't think there is. There is just too much emphasis on this combat. You have uh, three actions a turn. Two of those have to be combat. Because if you're not... Or you can decide to waste your time, yeah. yeah or yeah, or yeah. Or, or you can just lose the game. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because it is all based around taking prisoners. Because it's sort of like Colise- for people who played Colosseum, you're going to score sort of like your best round. You have to beat your previous score in order to get special benefits. You know, you don't have to, but if you're not, then you are also probably losing. So I think there's a, like a sweet spot around like nine then you know then 10 12 type thing i think that's roughly the sweet spot around 15 points i could be wrong but i don't know but yeah it's tough to tell on the basis of one play but yucatan is one of those games where a lot of the incentives work at cross purposes so take for example a game like princes of florence or like coliseum because coliseum is a lot like princes of florence where it is it does have that system where it's pretty much more or less your best showing that will matter in terms of winning the game Generally, in those games, what happens is as the game ramps up, you have infrastructure, you're acquiring more resources or what have you. Yucatan is the exact opposite. As the game proceeds, your scoring potentials diminish. Yes, you get more abilities, absolutely. But at the end of the day, you're going to be involved in two combats anyway. And you start with a prisoner at the start of the game, and every prisoner you sacrifice more on that later will get you three points. And then in round two, every prisoner you get will get you two points. Does your ability to capture prisoners go up by uh, proportionally? Absolutely not. And by the last round of the game, each prisoner is worth one point. Are you three times as good at taking prisoners by that point? None of us were. And so this there was this incentive to hold back. But by the same token, the way you get points is just by sacrificing prisoners. So the way to maximize your score is to forego all the cool bonuses, all the upgrades, all the step-ups, all the little evolutions that you get to do, access to better toys, access to better abilities for your leader, etc., 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 and just score as much as you can every round. That's what I did. I won the game by a healthy margin, and I got none of the cool toys. Meanwhile, my opponents, who were playing the game, I think, quote-unquote, properly, you know, gradually upping their sacrifice value. We're getting all the cool toys, but whatever, I banked enough of a score by the first few rounds that it didn't really matter. I hate it when games do that. You know, the smart play is at odds with the cool play and or if all the incentives work at cross-purposes, not in fun ways. This isn't a case like, well, money now or points later. No, this is just, well, score big now and don't get toys or score less later and get toys. Well, I'm wondering no. if that, that end game scoring will be enough, right? Because if you do manage to get 
uh, a higher score in the last round. Yes. Where prisoners are worth one point and you somehow beat a previous score. Yes. Through magic. <laughs> um, <laughs> then it opens up this end game scoring where you're going to score for all of these toys that you might have procured through. To a max game. of 12. To a max of 12. Yes. And none of us... Even if we had had reached that threshold, we're close to that. I think we were hovering around six to eight in most instances as to what we would have scored for that. I, again, I don't think that makes up for the way, the fundamental way the, the, the points economy work. And also, since we're on the topic, thematically, I'm sick to death of this. I know next to zero about the Mayan civilization. And you know one of the reasons why I know next to zero about, about the Mayan civilization? Because any time the Mayan civilization gets anywhere close to a video game or a board game, it's all like human sacrifices, human sacrifices, human sacrifices. I Look, I'm not saying that I have any basis to believe that the Mayans didn't perform human sacrifice. I'm willing to bet they did some other things, though. And it's just, it's just tiresome and one-note and gruesome. And it's just, ugh, I... I ugh. Yeah, and the and the fighting is just so arbitrary because all you're worried about is getting the prisoners, right? You don't yes. you don't care if you win. Winning is secondary. You don't yeah. care about holding the position. Yep. You just you just want the prisoners. It's it is unfortunate because the production is great. You have these really nice player boards with the upgrades laid out and how they how you activate your each hero. I like all of that. I'm really wondering if they just tried to really water down Kemet. It's like, yes, the movement's arbitrary. Now it's super arbitrary. Yes, the combat is just transactional. Now it's pointlessly transactional. <laughs> you know, and and instead of having this vast array of special abilities, now everyone has the same special abilities and they're in front of you all the time. So that's, you know, key down as well so maybe that's what they were going for i think they cut out a little too much but but and nonetheless the game was very long yes oof. it took us about three hours to finish and we were playing at a reasonable pace it was bizarre and not much happens no it, it, it's a classic case of you know three hours of much ado about nothing this is rope a back and forth in the yep. middle back over and over again i i'm even loathe to play it again <laughs> which is too bad and and the kick and these stretch goals are ridiculous you know the the main pyramid alone is 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 dumb never mind the <laughs> three extra little pyramids they throw in the giant for... the giant pyramid this is a classic case of form over function the giant pyramid is a component that you'll interact with potentially zero times over the course of the game we had two people ever use it once each in terms of just moving your leader up. And even then, it amounts to trifling a little. Then you have the smaller pyramids, which were a, a, a Kickstarter goal, which elide crucial information about the game state. That was one of the rules we got wrong, because if you don't play with the stretch goals, as you move along these tracks, you get bonuses because they're printed on the board. It's never mentioned anywhere in the rulebook. Never does it even say, as you evolve, and get the corresponding bonuses printed therein. So even if we were playing with the correct components, we would still have some questions. But as it is, the stretch goal versions, which are these 3D pyramids instead of act the actual board, they have nothing printed on them. And so we had no ability to know that there were bonuses that you're supposed to get by going up them. Wild. Series of terrible decisions. And for what it's worth, just circling back to the rulebook just as, as a capper, even though I was able to read that language, it is shockingly unprofessional that Matago would ever put a rulebook like that out the door. There are untranslated words in the text several times. It is amazing that they thought that was fit to print. It's bad. Yucatan. Yucatan. Oof. <laughs> Oof, indeed. 
played another game of Skytier Horde. This is the solo, vaguely tower defense-y, but not really, mostly just Magic the Gathering-style uh, combat game by Giacomo Neri and Ricardo Neri of Skytier Games. I was in the mood for some solo gaming, and it's remarkably simple to set up and about a 20-minute long game. Walker and I had a somewhat bad experience, vaguely degenerate experience with it multiplayer. I would be willing now to try it again by virtue of two things that I've learned. Number one, you probably want one of the bases that allows you to draw more cards, because there are some of those, and there are some factions that are better at card draw than others. And given that, I think I would be in a better position to introduce the game to somebody playing co-op again. It went from, suffice to say, with this with this added experience, although I always enjoyed it solo, it has gone from probably best to never play it two-player co-op to something I'd be willing to try. There's also the opposition mode, but I don't think that there's enough for the bad guys to do if it were controlled by a human player. So, I mean, if somebody really wanted to, I'd give that a shot. But as it is... I appreciate Sky Tier Horde for precisely how I've described it. It is a solo Magic the Gathering style combat game where my 5-4 attacks your 2-3, whatever. And I've been looking for that for a while. And it really satisfies me. I'm looking forward to the extra content from the upcoming Kickstarter. It's a reasonably expensive card game, but it is remarkably minimalistic in terms of setup and table presence, especially with the retail edition. And I'm uh, happy that it's in my collection. And as I say, when I've got a, uh, about a half hour of solo gaming that I want to get done, it is absolutely something I'm happy to have in my collection. That is Skytier Horde. We played an interesting game called Sorcerer City. This is put out by Druid City Games and designed by Scott Caputo. And he also, he is the tile layer person, apparently, Mark. He also did Veluspa, Whistle Stop, and Whistle Mountain. Oh. He likes tile laying games. And this is a real-time tile laying game, and there's not many out there. So this is something that is very different. It's a little bit overblown and a little bit clunky with a little of extra stuff I don't think that needs to be there. But essentially, everyone starts with the same deck. You get one main card to start with, a, a artifact. And then... Well, that's for the expert variant, for, ooh, for super super oh, elite gamers. You played the fancy version. Yes. I decided to entrust upon you the incredible burden of being able to deal with this remarkable rules grit. So the timer starts and you get to start flipping tiles and they're going to have certain vectors on them and it all forms out into you creating four different colors of sort of paths. And as you flip up, there'll be goals and that's either creating groups of, of light colors or straight lines of like colors. All of the different colors mean different things. If you get the most red points, then you're going to be able to get the best benefit for winning the round. The green points are for straight up victory points. The blue are bonuses that you can insert into any of those other uh, scores. And yellow is money to buy more tiles for your deck. So it's sort of like a deck builder on top of that because you're constantly getting more tiles into your tile stack. And there's very interesting monsters that come up every round as well. You have... We had a Kraken that, you know, destroys a bunch of tiles or a gelatinous cube that did stuff, sprites, uh, there are skeletons. There's all sorts of different things that are going to come out. Looking forward to playing again, but like I said, a lot of it is a little overblown for what they have. They have something very interesting there, and if they just cut out a lot of the chaff, I think it would be way more enjoyable. I agree with you. I think that Sorcerer City, which parenthetically is based on a lesser-known Guns N' Roses song, uh, take me down to the Sorcerer City where the points are green and the tiles are pretty. Very pretty. Yeah, anyway. 
I mean, I'm surprised that Axel Rose didn't get a co-designer credit. Ultimately, I agree with you. The real-time tiling is the appeal of the game, but you spend a lot of time in Sorcerer City doing other stuff. And since it is surprisingly difficult to buy new tiles, I didn't get the same delightful churn that you get in a lot of other deck-building experiences, but by the same token, the challenge of Sorcerer City is as the rounds go on, your stack gets bigger, but the amount of time you have to build your city remains the same. And so you frequently end up in situations where you either run out of time or, in some cases, look at what's on the stack, think about what you have left in your deck and say, eh, no, I'm done, thanks very much. Especially since you know that there are going to be monsters available. I'm not a huge fan of the fact that there are instantaneous monster effects that happen during the real-time segment, because as a rules explainer, I immediately get nervous whenever there are special effects that might happen in the middle of a real-time game. Fortunately, in this case, they were relatively simple, and no one had any serious problems. I'm not a huge fan of the fact that no matter what you build, your collection of tiles will look like nothing in particular. The tiles are very functional, but rather hideous, and as a consequence, a lot of the visual appeal of tiling goes away. But I agree with you. The core element is there. The core gameplay is fun. Just There's a lot of extra stuff. I, I'd be willing to try it again, you know, see more of the monsters. I really do like real-time games. A lot of people don't, so they should stay away. And I don't know that it really leveraged some of the more quality aspects of de deck building. One thing that Sorcerer City definitely leveraged in terms of deck building was the tremendous variance in terms of the order in which you draw things. For example, poor Huey had a special tile that lets him kill a monster, and he never pulled that after placing a monster. And so, much like any... like People underestimate the extent to which luck is determinative of your success in games like Dominion and almost all other deck builders. And I think that Sorcerer City really leans into that. I had one round where all the monsters were near the bottom of the stack, and so I just stopped when I saw that the next was a monster. It's like, okay, I'm done here. And the other thing is, just to round it out in terms of, again, it being more cumbersome than it needed to be, we could have called it after round two. It was clear what was going, going down. The only way that it, that could have changed for people to reverse, reverse those fortunes were if the influx of tiles were uh, appropriately high, or if there were any outflux of tiles. As it was, you had a winning combination, and you just pumped it uh, four more times, and that was that. I'm not begrudging you your victory. It was well-earned, but you earned it in round two of five. So It's true. There's very little interaction, so there's very little you can do to stop someone, which is unfortunate, but is the nature of the beast, as they say. That's very wise, Walker. And a Sorcerer City by Scott Caputo at Druid City Games. Played another game of Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Scrawlers. This is the second set, Heroes of Waterdeep. And I am a massive, massive fan of Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Scrawlers. I just can't, I can't even explain it. I've talked about it in terms of my fundamental youthful enthusiasm for Connect the Dots. But I love real-time games. I love just racing through the dungeon, not knowing where you're going, careening from room to room, mad, in a madcap dash to finish it first or what have you. But I must concede... I must concede that this, the second set, Heroes of Waterdeep, is very much not a good introduction to the system when compared to the predecessor, Heroes of Undermountain. And that is because some of the runs that you do in Heroes of Waterdeep are timed runs, two minutes, 90 seconds, things like that. Those are great. Some of them are real long. <laughs> like We're talking like five minutes or so of just constant running through the dungeon backtracking and having to go here, there, and everywhere. What this does is two things, one more problematic than the other. The somewhat less problematic one is it really tries the patience of your friends who were promised a quick and cute game and who are playing Dungeon Scrawlers because you love it so much. 
The worst problem, though, is it gets kind of hard to score because people lose track of where you are, where you've been. They lose track of what score it was. Wait, was that 46 or 47? Oh, well, better start again. And uh, I'm willing to do it. But even I, in the process, as we're rounding out minute four of the dungeon, I'm thinking, they're really pushing it. (laughs) (laughs) It was long, especially when they want you to do three in a row, right? Yes. You just finish off like a five and you get, oh, we have to do two more. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> You're just like, oh, man. Well, in this case, in theory, each each set comes with ten dungeons. And in theory, one is supposed to be an intro one, and then you, you do a set of three. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, this time, I pulled out dungeons five, six, and seven. Saw that dungeon seven was a two-part dungeon. Both sides fully completed. I said, now nah, we're just going to do two dungeons. Because you can do as many dungeons as you want, and you can do whichever numbers you want. And quite frankly, in future, for people who are not hardcore enthusiasts and or people who don't owe me, I think what I might just do is take the time once. <laughs> because so far in both sessions, when we did 2, 3, 4, and 5, and 6, there have been some that were perfectly breezy, roughly the same length as the ones from Heroes of Undermountain. And then there were ones that were really intense slogs. I loved them. If you really, really love the system, as I do... Then yeah, it's it's a bit of a slog, but it's 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 an enjoyable slog because you figure okay, I have to figure out where I'm going, so you have to actually stop with your pen on the board and try to look and see okay, how do I get the yellow key? All right, I guess I'm going this way, and so there's a bit of maze processing as well. You can't just run blindly, careening from wall to wall the way I do in my life generally. And I like to have there's some decision there too. It's not always go after the bosses. You can just you know, try to clear the whole dungeon and accept the boss and just try to get, uh, you know, little points quicker. Yeah, well, that was dungeon number six. Dungeon number six allowed you to bypass any room you wanted. It was a timed run, and you could just run past things like, sorry, goblin, I've got a, I've got a meeting with a beholder, and just zoom past. And that's what I did. I just more or less ran straight to the boss and colored it straight in. Other people took different routes, and so there are options and, and trade-offs involved. Maybe there's an optimal path. I don't know. It's a light and fun game, but my advice is if you're going to be playing with children, people who have a relative low tolerance for real-time silliness and or zany madcap time pressure stuff, stick to Heroes of Undermountain. Heroes of Waterdeep is definitely for the dungeon scrawler elite. Uh, I shouldn't say that. I'm always <laughs> accused. I'm sure someone is going to crawl out of the woodwork yeah, and say, gateway, gatekeeper, gatekeeper, gatekeeper. <laughs> you said one game is good and the other one's not as good. That's gatekeeping. You're a gatekeeper. Anyway, what I mean is it's for people who are knee deep in the system and don't mind the prospect of a much longer run. That is what I meant to say. Is that okay? Am I all right now? Am I out of internet jail? A long run and then right after a long scoring session as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I Again, I adore it. I'm looking forward to the third set where no doubt there will be a 20 minute long run. <laughs> I, w- I want the app where you can just take a picture of your of your map and it'll score it for you. Ooh, that would be that would be pretty boss. Yeah, the scoring is even at the best of times a bit of a dragon with the longer ones really really cumbersome. We had somebody at the table who literally couldn't do it. I'm just like I-, I keep losing count. I had to score two dungeons as a consequence. Now, again, willing to do it. So that's Dungeons & Dragons, Dungeon Scrawlers, Heroes of Waterdeep. This is by Evangelis Bagiartakis and Konstantinos Karagianis, published by WizKids of 2023. Did a couple of streams this week. One, Mark, I did Dwarf versus Dwarf. I played the video game and then immediately did a solo game of the board game. So for those listeners who... Two dwarfs enter, one dwarf yeah, leaves. Exactly. So for those <laughs> listeners who have no idea what... Dwarf Romantic is, or what it is, I've, I played both. You can go to our YouTube live uh, channel, and you can check it out. 
like I said, I did a whole game of the video with music and very calm, nicely placing tiles. And then the board game, which does a great job of sort of strategizing and, and planning ahead. Very interesting game. Would play it multiple times. The second stream, we did get back to Red Cathedral. We finally got to play the Contractors expansion. So what it does is adds another dice. So it sort of makes the flow a little bit better. I, I wouldn't say as, as much as, as, as Huey did, but, uh, I think it, it opened up a little bit more, yet one more dice to choose from. And then this other whole extra board where you're getting contracts, you're sending workers out. And so it's going to create this scoring opportunity where when a tower completes, because every tower has a town tile on the top of it. So you complete Moscow. If you sent contractors to Moscow, then you're going to get how many flags you have in Moscow times how many workers you have there. So it's this little extra scoring. I don't think... I didn't think it was worth the actions to put them out there because it costs six contract tokens total just to get three workers out there. It's like one for every uh, co uh, contractor that's out there. So your first one's one, but and that's if no one else goes there. I see. So hard to get them out there. They do give you extra benefits that will trigger off the black die because, you know, everything has triggers, but... I, I did not feel, even though it, I didn't win the game, but I still didn't feel as though it, the scoring was worth it. It is very hard to expand tightly designed Euro games. I haven't played the Contractors expansion, but and even though I'm not as big a fan of the Red Cathedral as you are, the Red Cathedral is a very, is a well not very, is a relatively focused middleweight Euro game. And it is very difficult in such contexts to exp give an expansion to those games without saying, okay, well, here's the other board. And making that other board the right balance of worthy but not dominant is incredibly difficult. So, so often you end up with these things like, oh, it's an extraneous bit. I'm going to just ignore it and not pay any attention to that thing because I don't have to. Or it turns out to be so overwhelmingly important that you just have to go there. Finding that sweet spot where it's another option for experienced players of the game, super difficult. And it's no slight that a lot of designers are unable to do it. It's just the nature of the beast. And the other cool part about Red Cathedral is the, as you're moving the dice around, it has four different sections and you have different cards there every game. And how that changes up the game is quite extensive as well. So, you know, seeing how the two games were different was very cool to me because the expansion added all sorts of different ones that you can cycle in for one of them, like adding all sorts of different sort of, uh, each one came with its own little components, like new gems or, or brick pieces or all sorts of different things. So every game will be different. So two questions with people who played the Red Cathedral once before, would you prefer to play with the expansion or without? With the expansion, I think. What about new players? New players, I'd probably do the basic. I see. But you could still use, there's a lot of those extra cards that you can just use in the basic as well. Right, extra extra building cards when you set up the uh, That's right, the yeah. project at the start of the game? No, yeah. when you start, when you set up the dice board. Remember the, the, the cards uh, in the yes. quadrant? Yes. There's like different sort of occupation cards. You yes. You always have the same three basic ones, but they all have three uh, alternate cards that you right. choose. And then there's the uh, the priest card is the one that will can always change now. I see. So this is designed by Isra C and Sheely S. They have their own they have their own gaming company mark. It's called Lama Dice, but they, they didn't design Lama Dice. That's just, very confusing. Just so you know. Exactly. But this game is put out by Devia Games. They never cease to amaze us lately. 
yeah, Denver games are, are definitely on a hot streak, I think. Red Cathedral, specifically Contractors. Played a game of Judgment Eternal Champions. This is a MOBA-style board game, which is absolutely something I'm always keen to try. This was actually recommended to us by a listener, and we got a review copy from the publisher Creature Caster. This was designed by a pair of brothers named Andrew and Jeff Galea, who go by the nom de plume Gunmeister Games. And this is the second edition of the game, published by Creature Caster, with glorious miniatures. And it's a very impressive production. There are very, very large miniatures for the bases that you're trying to destroy, and there are very large and expressive miniatures for the heroes that you're playing. Uh, rather unfortunate use of neoprene, though. They included a neoprene mat for the board, and they folded it in the box. And as a consequence, there is this peak running through the middle of the board that you can't really get rid of. Is it a mountain? Yeah, effectively, it's a mountain. Uh, it's, I, I, I talked a lot about this on my episode of Bloat. Using neoprene appropriately is difficult, and uh, this, I think, would have benefited from a cardboard board. Anyway, but component quibbles aside, uh, Eternal Champions, at its best, leverages a lot of the really impressive stuff of Warhammer Underworlds. You may remember in Warhammer Underworld, some of the best aspects were suddenly shoving your opponent a single hex can be massively consequential. And that's built into the fundamental combat system of Judgment Eternal Champions in a very straightforward way, much like it was done in Warhammer Underworlds. This is a very much intended to be comparison uh, by way of praise, because that was a, a, an excellent combat system. And the fact that it was evocative, albeit different to the one in Underworlds, is an excellent thing. And during the first round of play of Judgment Eternal Champions, where there was jockeying for control of a central point, that was extremely consequential. Suddenly shifting a single hex was very, very important. You'd launch an attack, not necessarily to do damage, but just because you wanted someone to be just a little bit over there. Setting up combos where you can shove an opponent next to one of your other figures so that they wouldn't have to waste an action getting into range. They could just wail on them the entire time. That part was great. Leveraging the special abilities of the different heroes was, again, roughly that ideal balance. I talked about this in the context of Omicron Protocol, an excellent skirmish game in a box. You can have too few special abilities, and you can have too many special abilities in a skirmish game. There's sort of a, a, a delightful middle where individual units have a lot of personality and give you fun things to do without making you feel like at the end of every game thinking, oh, I forgot to trigger that special ability because it was in a list of a dozen different weird variances. And I think they got that just about right. My problems with Judgment Eternal Champions is that I didn't really enjoy the victory conditions. Jockeying for position was great, but a lot of the time you didn't have to jockey for position because the way you get points in Judgment, broadly speaking, in the base scenario are twofold. Number one, you collect souls. You do that through a limitedly modified 2d6 roll trying to get to 12 after modifiers. Some characters are relatively good at that. They start with a plus six. They might be inclined to go do that. Other characters start at plus two. You don't really want to waste your time having them do that. And that part was uh, a little bit weird. And then the other way you harvest souls to a similar extent is just by murdering another hero. Fine, that part I understand. But heroes were unusually beefy. Even the sort of weak spellcasters could march up to the middle of the board and not really care too much because it would take usually like four or five attacks to bring them down in some cases. And that part didn't feel great. Now, maybe I've just been spoiled by 
other MOBA-style games where leave them exposed and they will die. So I felt a little bit disappointed in that sense. I I think that overall, I would have preferred Judgment Eternal Champions if there had been a victory condition associated with board presence, because again, the way the combat interacts with board presence was delicious, and I loved that part of it. Finding, Thinking who to activate first so that I can get people into position and getting my opponents out of position, all that part was wonderful. And I just wish that the victory conditions had played more into that aspect and or that there had been an increased sense of deadliness and urgency with respect to the combat, and or there had been a slightly more interesting aspect with respect to harvesting souls. Because, again, in other MOBA-style board games, the souls kind of sort of took the place of the mobs-ish, you know, a neutral board element that is consequential to victory. And I'm not complaining just because it's not mobs, but it's just usually in those other games the mobs are interesting. The mobs in Rum and Bones are interesting. The mobs in Guards of Atlantis are interesting. The souls here were just, as I said, limitedly modified 2d6 throws. Well, Underworld does a great job of the victory conditions, right? With those cards, right? You have them in your hand. You need to push people around to victory points or to different sides of the board. And so it all leads into that sort of the gameplay. Absolutely. If Judgment Eternal Champions had a victory condition system that was even, I'd say, as half as good as Warhammer Underworlds, I would want to play it all the time. It would, it would seriously be in contention for one of my favorite two-player games. Because the, the reason why we stopped playing Warhammer Underworlds was because the core system just started getting overwhelmed with the sheer weight of stuff and how things were getting illegal and rendering, you know, the meta killed it, basically. The built-in distribution method killed it. Judgment Eternal Champions has a, a very solid uh, distribution scheme so far. I mean, so far the only thing that's available is the core set, which gives you 11 heroes, but there's so much variety in those heroes that there's a lot of room to play. They've also given you the ability to choose to use the powers of things not represented by miniatures in the core game. Basically, there are these things called effigies of your gods. In the base game, there are two. There are these massive three-hex walls that are very, very well detailed that represent your god. But you can play any one of the four gods that are not represented by miniatures in there, and that part's great. And indeed, there's room to expand the roster and and different gods like different champions. and It's a whole thing. That part I, I really like. It's a nice self-contained universe, but lots of things to play around with. But as I say, it's primarily the victory conditions that I find less satisfying, and it leaves a lingering sense of disappointment because the good bits don't necessarily allow the game to shine the way I wish it would. Anyway, that was Judgment Eternal Champions. Lots to like, but again, I, I'm looking for a different kind of scenario. I'm going to look through those other scenarios, see if there's a little bit more ability to leverage those parts that I like, and and when and if I go back to it, I'm going to be trying to focus on those aspects. Got to show Mark My City Roll and Build, designed by Reiner Knizia, put out by Cosmos Games. And if we had not already played My City, I think this might have made a little bit more of an impact on us. They have this very interesting uh, dice system where you roll two dice and you match up the little gray dots, and it creates all these different shapes that you are now going to put on your 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 little map and it plays very much like my city where you start at the river and you build out and i'm wondering because the because of the way it plays i'm wondering if it just doesn't get interesting fast enough mm. it's like okay here's the first scenario maybe too basic and then the second scenario doesn't get advanced enough but anyway it goes through like i think there's about 15 different scenarios and it's going to get more and more intense as you go along it's not going to add any more components you're going to use the same two dice every time but the the layout of your map is going to be different every time because it comes with this giant stack of different maps as you progress through the story i'm less worried about the level of complexity and i'm more worried about the fact that unlike in my city where 
the tile set was determined by a pull of the cards, so you could make calculated gambles. It's like, okay, I know that the next card that's going to come up is one of these three shapes. This shape would be awesome. This shape I can live with. This shape would be death for me. Do I want to stay in? In the roll and write version, well, it's always just a random shot as to what things are going to adhere. And this is why I fundamentally prefer a well-done pull and write to even a well-done roll and write. Because, yeah, the, the, the cleverness of how the dice generate shapes is really, really cool. But at the end of the day, it's just generating random shapes. And one of the, I, this is an oversimplification, but I quipped that my city, uh, Roland Wright, was making me miss the sophistication of cartographers, and I do not enjoy cartographers. But at least in cartographers, it's a deck. You know that there's a deterministic set of things that are kind of come out in a random order, and so there's a universe of effects that you can try to hopefully plan around at some point. My City, the board game, did that. Things like Guild of Merchant Explorers does that. Things like Cartographers even sometimes does that. The problem with My City is as it's just this random cavalcade of, of strange shapes. Yeah. I, I'd happily play later scenarios. It's very, very quick, but the board game just strikes me as vastly superior. Well, like we said, like in, in our game, it was no three square corners. In my first game, almost all three square corners. Right. In both of those games, no giant U-shape, like uh, four square U-shape pieces. I see. In the third game I played, three of those in a row. <laughs> so, like you said, completely random, but still very interesting. I'm, I am enjoying playing it solo. It's a game where you could just sit on the couch, have the box lid beside you, roll the dice, do, do the shapes, have something on the television. I am going to enjoy playing it that way for sure. Absolutely. As a con in a context where it's just a low impact, like I said about Sky Tier Horde, you know, you've got a very, very short amount of time to kill. You don't necessarily want to want something deep in terms of setup or in terms of components. And it is one of those instances where the comparison to My City, the board game, is maddening only by virtue of its proximity. But by virtue of the fact that it is so similar to the board game in a tiny box that requires next to zero setup, next to no rules explanation, and next to no cost in comparison, it's probably half the cost of the board game, that is an achievement in and of itself. So if you haven't played My City, the board game... My City of the Roll and Write is an easier recommendation because it gets a lot of the good stuff. And hell, you can progress through the scenarios over the course of an afternoon. That's right. <laughs> and, and if you don't get it quick enough, My Island is coming out very soon. Ah, yes. I forgot that that was coming. I can't wait for My Island. We had a blast playing through that campaign of My City. It was in the... It was in the early days of being able to socialize with small amounts of bubble. It was it was it was like a mid-pandemic careful socializing experience and we burned through that campaign, but we we enjoyed it. Like yeah. it is hard to play a game that much that frequency uh, frequency without feeling burned out and it was just great. It was good. Yeah. And so again, that's part of my frustration with the, with the roll and write. It's like I remember the better version of this. It, it, just so, <laughs> and that's my city roll and build. So Walker, yes, Casper Lap, Casper Lap, Casper Lap, Casper Lap is a designer that you have a love hate relationship with. You love him when he's designing Gods Love Dinosaurs. It's true. You hate him when I he's designing Magic Maze. I love him when he designs Fun Facts. Yeah, there's that too. I guess I have a love-hate relationship with Casper Lap as well. <laughs> I I adore God's Love We both adore God's Love Dinosaurs. I thought Magic Maze was cute and enjoyable. You seem to have it Go, seems to have crawled inside your skin. Going left is not a gamer. I mean it's a good catchphrase, but I don't think it captures criticism. Anyway. Captures the game though. <laughs> I don't think it does. 
Casper Lap has published a new uh, party-level game called That's Not a Hat, published this year by Ravensburger. And when you explained the game, I think everyone at the table, possibly you included, was like, this isn't a game. And then about five turns in, we immediately started cackling. It was... <laughs> the way that it works is, I'm not going to go through the details because the details are, in fact, a little bit thorny. But basically, there's a universe of cards that is the number of players plus one that have these little drawings of things. I'm sad that hats don't have a certain level of primacy, but whatever. They might show a banana or a kettle or a radio or what have you. And all that happens is there are these face-down cards. You saw them when they came off the deck, but you haven't seen them since. You're trying to remember what's in front of you now. You're passing it to somebody else and saying, this is a banana. And they can't remember if it's a banana or not. But now they have to try to hope that it was a banana. And maybe they can remember you telling them it was a banana, or maybe not. Anyway, <laughs> we were all racking our minds in a most enjoyable way and shocked that we could not remember what was going on. It was It was great. Yeah, as I think as long as you keep a good pace and you have the right sort of mindset, I think this game is going to hit every time. It, and I think it would really depend on on the number of players. I think it would have different play styles with different players. It, the box has three to eight. We played it with four. With four, it was a game of memory. With six, seven, eight, I think it's a game of bluffing. Honestly, at that point, you're like, yeah, this is a banana. I've got no clue where the banana is. Yeah. <laughs> was was there a banana? Is the yeah. banana out of the yeah. game? Yeah. I can't remember. Someone no, said this, banana once. They said it. Someone said banana. I heard banana somewhere. This is totally the banana. That's not a hat. Charming, charming game. Shockingly good memory game. I would have told you prior to playing That's Not a Hat, I had no interest in any memory games at all. But there you go. That's not a hat. Loved it. I got to show Mark a game called Tinder Blocks. It was a Kickstarter game. This was designed by Rob Sparks, put out by Alley Cat Games, and it's a delightful, charming little dexterity game. I get it now. It's about building fires. Yes. And the, the, the designer's name is Rob Sparks. Just so. He does indeed. So I, I didn't know, based on your description, that it came in an incredibly tiny little tin. It does. I was further charmed. It is a dexterity stacking game based on the lack of functionality of the possibly deliberately, possibly accidentally, but nonetheless delightfully terrible tweezers that come with it. So you have this little tin that has components. It's either a, a yellow ember or a red ember and then some logs. And you'll flip up a card and it'll say you need a red ember and a log. So you'll take your little tin and you'll get your little <laughs> recipe ready. You'll take out your log and you'll you'll stack your ember on it. And now you got to you got to transport this this little mini structure into the main fire in the middle. And it is very quaint and lovely. Can I have a little bit of old man in the hobby musings? Do you permit me? Right, go ahead. I remember starting the hobby about 25 years ago, and people were paying like $80, and back in the day, 80 bucks was a huge amount of money for a board game, for like imported versions of Bosak, because that was that was the best hobbyist stacking game. And I'm, ver I'm thrilled that we now have a hobby that has these delightful, tiny little things that are these great little stacking games. This and Crazy Tower and what have you. Uh, dexterity games are in a very, very good place, and it makes me very happy. Tinderblocks was delightful. You were nice to show me Radiant Offline Battle Arena. This is designed by Jack Murray and put out by Heel Turn Games. And it is a, a play on a MOBA system, but with cards only. And I think if you think your hero is going to live, you're wrong. <laughs> yep. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Reasonable. But it is a thing. <laughs> is it a hat? It is, it's very much a take that type game. You, you'll, I, just the fact that 
initiative is so important. If you, you can attack and take out another hero before they have a chance to do anything. And whether that's good or not, I am not sure. I need to play it more, I think, just to see if that is, is usual or not. Because you could get attacked and you don't have the right cards in your hand to defend. And then your hero is gone and you're down. I will, I will observe this. And you can tell me if I'm off base. It is my general perception that when it comes to many game mechanisms that could be called hand management, you tend not to be a huge fan. And Radiant is a lot about hand management because when two heroes fight, broadly speaking, you can play one card face down on them. And generally, if you can't and the other player can, you're going to be behind the eight, eight ball. And in such instances, I often find that you that's not a that's not a dynamic that you tend to enjoy. Oh, and well that and, and especially if the other player knows which heroes generate card draw. And they, so they have a full hand of cards and you're playing top decking, that's even if you can. Sure. Sure. Well, in future then, I I mean this is partially on me. I should in future guide you towards those heroes that can generate cards because you might find them a better, a better experience. Uh but part of the reason why in Radiant and I talked about this last time I played with someone else. It is sometimes the case that you don't have a lot of death in the early parts of the game, and there's a lot of jockeying and a lot of marshalling of forces before there's any bloodshed, Uh, but it is a very, very direct to the jugular MOBA distillation. And so consequently, sometimes heroes die very, very quickly. Now, sometimes they come back. It is the nature of MOBA MOBA games that sometimes dead heroes come back. It's a little bit more difficult in Radiant than in other games. It doesn't happen automatically, but it's, it's something you can work towards. Just one comes back. Uh, yes, but then you get another one that shows up. Anyway, it's yes. it, there's some dynamics there, and I I thoroughly enjoy its approach for what it does. You get a fair amount of customization at the outset. You get to see the consequences of the customization without a particularly onerous or tedious buildup in any case. And it's I I analogize it again to Imperium what Imperium of Contention is to other 4X games. Radiant is to other MOBA style games. It's sort of the director's cut straight to the action version of uh, building up is not fun. Let's, let's, let's get to things. And I, I thoroughly enjoy the way it represents these things. Yeah. I like the fact that you get to pick your deck comprises of a bunch of heroes. They have their own decks. They all get shuffled together. You pick your main, your main hit, your main leader or God. God. And, and you go, I do want to play it again. Well, that's good. Radiant Offline Battle Arena is a review copy we got from the publisher designed by Jack Murray at Heel Turn Games. The original was published in 2019. The Champion Edition was fulfilled this year after a crowdfunding campaign. And I, for one, hope that there's going to be more, but it's a little touch and go. And those are the games we played this week. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, we have a problem. A lot of times. A problem. Yeah, when we go to play games, we have a hard time deciding. You keep saying this. I don't think that's true. We usually have like a 30-second conversation. Do we want to play Monopoly (laughs) or do we want to play Scrabble? (laughs) 
we just we're never sure. But now our problems are solved because dear, dear now there is a game that is Monopoly Scrabble. Dear, dear listeners, you get to play them both at the same time. Sometimes listeners complain that they can't tell when we're joking, and I can only say <laughs> I'm right there with you. I. <laughs> so there's a game Monopoly Scrabble. So. Yeah, I don't know. I, I you don't know? Okay, I that's didn't it. want to read anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 okay, okay. I, I was just like, really? I will table any all questions. Who would want this? Who would play? Presumably a word, Hasbro. A word, game, a word game while you're playing Monopoly. I can't think of anything more torturous. What if you auction off letters? Oh, of course, but nobody plays with the auctions anymore. Never mind. Oy, oy, oy. I could see an auction letter game. I wouldn't want to play it, but... A follow-up conversation from our previous Eurus, where we mentioned the excellent game Soldiers and Postmen's Uniforms by David Thompson. It was remarked that it was had not been part of the recent reprint crowdfunding campaign for the other entrants in the Valiant Defense series. And it was observed by a couple of listeners, as well as the man himself, David Thompson, that the reason why Soldiers and Postmen's Uniforms, one of our favorites of the series, was not involved in that campaign was because it was still readily available and that there were copies to be had. So uh, you heard the man. Go buy a copy of Soldiers and Postmen's Uniforms. There you go. So thank you for the follow-up to those listeners that pointed out. Thank you for David Thompson for clarifying that. And now we know. And knowing, as they say, is some proportion of the fight. So Mark, it looks like we got it wrong again. I'm not surprised. Perseverance by Mind Clash Games was very good. Because... <laughs> who, who has told us this? Well, they're coming out with episodes three and four. Oh, well, that was inevitable. I mean, it didn't matter how well or poorly it did. Well, I so, suppose it could have been so bad that they downed the company, but yeah. They're, they're not... Do you seriously think... They were like, okay, we, we've, we've, we've got all this from Perseverance Chronicles episodes one and two, but we're only going to pull the trigger on three and four based on what Walker and Mark have to say no, about I, episodes I, one I, and two. I'm, I'm not us. I've heard no one talk about it. Some people kind of enjoyed it, but I think they may have been lying to themselves. No, I, I, I never I never seek to impute bad faith or false consciousness. I have heard some people express mild enthusiasm for the end result. Well, let's hope that episodes three <laughs> and four are, are, are good. Yeah, and, I, and and bring them fun. I have I have with great difficulty I have now shifted Mind Clash over to a wait and see rather than immediately immediately support. We'll see how Voidfall turns out. I have delightful news, Walker. Do tell. To quote the unofficial tagline of Hollenspiel, dinosaurs, everybody. So Zoe Allred, the designer of the absolutely marvelous party-ish but not quite style game Persuasion about Jane Austen style courtship is going to be publishing a game with Hollenspiel. This is a game about dinosaurs distracting themselves leading up to the end of the world. It is called wait for it, Velociraptor. Isn't that the greatest title since Seal Team Flicks? That is fantastic. That is amazing. Let me just read to you the announcement from Hollenspiel. We are pleased to announce that there will be publishing Velociraptor by Zoe Allred. Play as dinos playing human games while certain doom hurls towards the earth. Each dino's unique coping mechanism, capital C, capital M, prevents them from thinking about their mortality. Apparently it's a series of like two to three dozen mini games that you play while distracting yourself before the end of the world. I cannot wait. This sounds like delightfulness in a box. Zoe Allred is unique talent. It is wonderful that more of its work is going to be hitting print, which is to say widespread publication in the form of Hollenspiel. This is marvelous. I, I Velociraptor. Dinosaurs, everybody. Awesome. So there's a game on, on BJ by Thomas DuPont. We know him for, or I know him, we know him from Denia, 
and Rush Out, and he's, he's, he's done some other games, but this looks very promising. I'm having a ton of fun playing it on Board Game Arena. It should be out in actual retail soon. The BGA implementation is done by Thurn. This is called Knarr, K-N-A-R-R, and it is a, a Viking game, but you're sort of building your tableau. You have a certain number, number of clan cards, and there's, I think, four different colors, and so you start playing them to your tableau, and when you play them to that color, that whole line of Vikings uh, triggers, getting you stuff, but then you can spend them to put out sort of mission cards. So this mission card requires two purple, so you sacrifice or or use those two cards. They go to the discard pile. You can get other tokens as well that you can use instead of losing those cards, because as you know, if you build up a bunch of cards, you're going to be getting more stuff. So you don't want to spend cards if you don't have to. And anyway. those Vikings are okay, right? They, they go to a farmer's oh, sure. state? Valhalla. Where they can, where they can play, with their, play with their friends? All the food they can eat. Okay. It's a great place. So you get the your mission cards, and then as you're... As you're running your lines, one of the one of the things you can get are silver bracelets. And then at the end of your turn, you can do a trading phase, and you can trade one, two, or three. And the the mission cards have sort of three levels, and and so the more levels you go, the more stuff you get, the more victory points. That's how you're getting victory points. Anyway, it just cycles like that. It's a very interesting and quick card game. Looking forward to showing it to you. Kanar, the art is really cool too. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our topic this week, which is our new top tens. Not so new. <laughs> Set sort the of, stage, Walker. Why of, are we talking sort about Sort of this? coupled to Golden Age. So Board Game Barrage had a topic a few weeks ago. Pod Boys for Life. The Pod Boys for Life. Uh, something to do with Golden Age. Now... <laughs> You stop paying attention after all. I'm just saying. I just want to make sure that this is this is this is no response to that. Yeah, yeah. This, this is, is not, not commentary yeah. or a reply. Nothing to do with that, except for the word. After all, my commentary on their work is not fit for broadcast, <laughs> except for the word "golden age." All right. So sure. I I listened. To, I I thought it was going to go a different direction. I thought we we were probably going to take it in a different direction. I thought it was interesting because "golden age" is absolutely a term that's thrown around. In fact, I might have rather inaptly thrown it around myself, and I regret it now. And also some listeners have been talking about updating our top 10 lists. That too. And I thought it would be an interesting sort of retrospective or however you want to say it, sort of couple together golden age and sort of compare it to our lists and see if there's some sort of something we can get out of that. Mm. So absent specific historical designations, this is the part where I get incredibly geeky. Walker has basically encouraged me to do so like the Golden Age of Pericles or something, a specific rigid designator. Uh, Golden Age type arguments or appeal to Golden Age, I find fundamentally intellectually bankrupt. A number of philosophers do this. Uh, Nietzsche and Rousseau, I think, did it the worst. You know, you appeal to some sort of hypothetical before times to justify a certain set of positions, usually political, sometimes otherwise. Uh, and... I would actually argue that Rawls' original position is kind of sort of a version of the Golden Age argument, but kind of twisted. By the way, parenthetically, Rawls thought he was a Kantian. People call Rawls a Kantian. Rawls was not a Kantian. Anyway, moving on. So there's this idea of the before times. You either construe the before times as a terrible, terrible, nightmarish case. Think Hobbes. Life is solitary, poor, brutish, nasty, and short, and that justifies the Leviathan. Or you're Rousseau, and you think that there was some sort of pre-society golden age, and therefore governments are bad, and they, they should... Uh, it's 
ahistorical speculative nonsense, and even in contemporary contexts where we talk about the golden age of this, that, or the other, it's usually fundamental, ba fundamentally backward-looking rather than prospective, and I find it often hagiographic hey, at best and sort of revisionist at worst. Anyway, that's my capsule my, critique of my, golden my, age. My layman's view on it, I think it's roughly the same, but using different words, is that I feel it's a little gatekeepy. And makes you feel as though, you know, the best is gone and, and there's nothing to look forward to anymore, right? Yeah, good it's point. Like, it's like, oh, it's happened already. Yeah. We missed out or, you know, it's, and now we're, we just got trashed to look forward to from there. <laughs> sure. When, when done in a retrospective fashion. Now, as far as the conversation with respect to entering and, you know, our being currently in a board gaming golden age, I mean, it really depends on what you're talking about. In terms of sheer volume, Sure. But then you could just talk about sheer volume. If it's in terms of quality, well then, you know, let's actually have a discussion about various quality. And this is something that we do all the time. And one of the things we try to do wherever possible is situate games in comparison to the games that came before it, right? If you tell yourself, I'm not saying that people do this, but I'm just saying this is one of the potential dangers of speaking in this way. If you tell yourself that you're in board games golden age, well, that necessarily implies, or at least leads you towards the conclusion that something that comes out now must be better than something that came out 10 years ago, right? And that is not a perspective I can fundamentally endorse. I've been accused of being a gatekeeper for, for lionizing a lot of the games that got published 10, 20, even 30, 40 years ago. I don't think that's accurate. I think, I try to think at best that it is a sort of antidote to the hyper-consumerist always looking towards what's next. When I play an area majority game and I say, I'd rather play El Grande, that's not me being a gatekeeper. That's me trying to point out... <laughs> Number one, my sincere apprehension of the relative merits of different games. And also, number two, maybe you don't need to pledge for five more area majority games if you, like, you don't need the, the fancy new version of Han or Web of Power, if you've got Han or Web of Power, but anyway. And I think, I think there are also two different things here as well. I think there is a golden age for board games. I, not to say that there are, are golden ages. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, I think there's two different levels here there's there there's board games and then there's board gamers exactly and what i mean by that i think that you know there might have been a great time a few years ago where a bunch of games came out and and created a base and that could be the golden age of board games more on that later and now that there's such there has been such a glut of games now you have a, a ton to choose from it seems as though people are getting rid of a lot of their old stuff because they want to get the new stuff yep. so it's a lot easier to get the the older stuff so it's 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 a, a great time to be a gamer because a lot of things are readily available uh, completely unsurprisingly walker i think that's an excellent perspective because when we talk about if we're going to talk about there being a golden age of board games, why is it that we then immediately start to think about the releases, right? We should ideally be more community focused in terms of how accessible is the hobby? What are the, what are the people entering the hobby? How many people are entering the hobby? How sustainable is the group of people playing the games? How welcoming are we to new populations? How underrepresented are various groups within this population? Rather than the fact that we're finding new and new and yes, the quality of components absolutely generally can get better. Uh, sometimes not for the better, but, you know, and, and you can even QV ne complaints about neoprene. But, you know, better better focus on the people in terms of, of the hobby than absolutely quality of releases. But there you go. True. And you can pull back one step even further, whereas the quote-unquote golden age could be that time 
when you had all of that free time, when your friends yes. were in town, when you played games yep. with, with people you knew over and over again and, and, and times were, I don't want to say times were great because times. Yeah. Times were what times, times were, were and times yeah, were yeah. times were, but you know, when, when you got your, when you have the most memories of gaming, right. That yeah. could also be part of it as well. Yeah. Just in the same way that we shouldn't necessarily focus at the releases at the expense of the community, we shouldn't necessarily focus on either of those at the expense of your own personal experiences, because if you have no ability to play any of these new games, doesn't matter what kind of age you're in, it's a bad one for your hobby experience. <laughs> anyway, that is, these are all excellent uh, clarificatory and framing observations, Walker, and I thank you for it. So uh, why don't we start with my list, because it'll be much more easily dispensed with. Uh, this is this is a, a quick recap of my top ten of all time. We did these in an episode years ago because people asked for it. I'm I'm more than happy to engage in top tenery. I guess is is the term the the activity of generating top tens. Walker has very serious methodological ob, uh, objections to doing such things, but champion and good-hearted man that he is, he nonetheless did so for the sake of the listeners. For the listeners! For the listeners. Anyway, my top 10 has uh, not changed since roughly 2018. Now, do you want to put any caveats on this? Like, are these games you think are just good games? Yes. Or are these games that you would you would take on a boat with you? On Do you want to use any of these caveats, or do you just want to say these are, these are or, <laughs> or just well mechanic games. I am open to the possibility that these are the 10 games that I take with me on, on a desert island. I don't know if I would necessarily regard that as, as equivalent to my... Uh, the, these, I think, are the 10 best designs that I've ever played. Gotcha. My, mine's going to be in that caveat of, like, if my house was burning and I could grab 10 games, those, these are the 10 games I would grab. Oh, yeah. I might... Uh, in in those, that scenario, I would pick different ones on the basis that I would, you know, replace ones that I could replace and I would keep the ones that are not replaceable anyway uh so uh my number 10 is the tribune expansion again i'm kind of ambivalent as to whether i like the original edition or the newer edition that was published in 2021 i'm not really sure uh but that was published in 2008 and an expansion of game in 2007 raw from 1999 we've talked enough about raw i think that's that's pretty clear Eight is Infinity, the miniatures game. That is the second edition that was published in 2008, but it was a variation of a game that was originally published in 2005. Loop and Louie from 1992, still the greatest sexuality game ever made. Race for the Galaxy, the Brink of War. That's the third expansion to the first arc of Race for the Galaxy expansions. It was published in 2010, but it too was an expansion of a game published in 2007. 2007 was clearly a good year. Uh, number five, which is the newest entrance in the lit, Gloomhaven, published in 2017, which is separated by any of its neighbors by at least eight years, which I find fascinating. This is, yeah, my top ten was basically static. So when when did the when did the Infinity Miniature game come out? To, it was, second edition came out in two thousand eight, and second edition is when I got, when I got into the game. Right. I'm not saying that I would prefer second edition over third or fourth. That's not my claim. It's just, you know, that's that's what got it onto the list. So that's how it kind of associated. And honestly, the differences between second, third, and fourth editions are relatively marginal. Uh, there's the simplified version of, of Infinity called Code 1, which I do not enjoy. Anyway, Imperial 2030 is number four, published in 2009. Number three is Antica 2, published in 2014. But it's a very it's the evolution of the gameplay uh, designed in 2005. I would happily play the base version as well. Blue Moon Legends in 2014, but that was the omnibus published by FFG, the redevelopment of the Cosmos version, which was originally published in 2004, and then Tiger and Euphrates published in 1997, which I think is the greatest game ever made. This list has been roughly static. 
Uh, this this particular version of the list has been static for about four to five years. I don't know when I actually decided to put Gloomhaven in my top ten, uh, but it was a couple of years after publication, probably. And before that, the list had been stable for, for, for several years. I just, you know, if I play a worker placement game better than Tribune, if I play an auction game better than Raw, if I play, you know, then, then yeah, they'll get on the list, but I haven't. So not not to my tastes. This is, again... This isn't me saying that we're on a downward trajectory, right? It's just, I love a lot of the recent releases. I really enjoy them. It's clear. I talk about them every week. But at the end of the day, even the ones that I seriously enjoy, I, I think they pale in comparison to a lot of these games. So looking at the year of release of your list, there's really not a really locked down tight area. There's like a large expansion. There's like a... Late nineties, early aughts. Yes, seems to be the kind of cluster. Like Nineteen ninety nine to two thousand and eight. I think a lot of that is because it's about the sort of early career production of both Reiner Knizia and Matt Gertz. I think that accounts for a lot of it, right? Because uh, th- this is uh, between Matt Gertz and Reiner Knizia, we're talking about the bulk of the list anyway. And Matt Gertz has ever since he published Concordia has mostly been in his Concordia phase. And Reiner Knizia has been designing much, much lighter fare, which is fine. We enjoy them. Love me some Llama Dice. Love me my city. A lot of that lighter stuff. But he hasn't really been designing mid or medium heavy games much lately. And that's more my preference in terms of his uh, his body of work. So there we have it. <laughs> there we have it. So my list is not in any order. I will go from Axe and Allies World War One. Yeah, you're going to stress which ones are different from your original list, right? I've removed Kemet mm-hmm. and Level 7 Invasion and Diplomacy. I see. The rest has stayed the same in the additions. So let's start, like I said, Axe and Allies World War Two. Sorry, Axe and Allies World War One, 1914. That was released in 2013. Lords of Hellas, which is a new one, it was released in 2018. Hansa Teutonica in 2009. Autobahn, which came out in 2022. With a bullet. Which is a new one to the list. Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor. Oh my goodness. From 2021 is also a new one. And the rest one, the rest are the, the oldies but goodies. Orleans, 2015. Gaia Project, 2017. Space Hulk, 2009. Scythe, 2016 and Tigris and Euphrates 1997. To be fair though, your first exposure to Space Helic was with second edition, I believe. Possibly even first. No, first. First, oh, first. first. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. Which was way before 2009. 2009 was the third edition as I recall. Yes. Just in terms of of overall historical perspective. So, uh, I would infer, let me let me ask you just in terms of how you you craft this. Am I therefore to assume that Kemet going out and Lords of Hellas going in were more or less an equivalent exchange because they're both troops on a map games? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, Lords of Hellas is is pretty great. I would probably rather play Kemet, though, all told. But it's weird. Our local group has turned on Kemet, and I haven't really been able to play the, the newer version as much as I'd like. It's a bit of a shame. And the 1914 edition of Axis and Allies, that's a bit of a deep cut. Not Not frequently played, is my understanding. No. It is is it's definitely just old school, definitely nostalgia, but it, it it really doubles down on the sort of combined arms that is 
is very interesting and also sure. the map layout is very interesting. It's like sort of like an overtop, very much like War Room did, it's sort of an overtop globe perspective of, of the ma- of the world. So despite the fact that you have been a hobbyist gamer for longer than I have, you know, QV being exposed to Space Hulk First Edition and, and, and such things, you have more recent entrants onto your list. I do. Uh, such as Uprising and Autobahn. Uh, Autobahn, for what it's worth, I think is a fine... I, you know, I have no quibbles with your list. I think they're all fine games. I wouldn't necessarily regard uh, a lot of them as my favorites. Like, I'd, I'd happily play, but I'm not hugely, hugely jazzed on Autobahn. I'm very enthusiastic about. The only one on the list that I truly don't like is Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor, which I think is painful. I think that's almost a one-for-one exchange for level seven. Because it's the same. Oh, it good is, point. It is troops on on the map. Cooperative, cooperative game. You're right. You're right. Fair enough. Uh, and that is that is absolutely a genre, a very particular, very very niche genre that uh, you've been looking for. Very much in the same way that I've been looking for a solo Magic the Gathering style combat yeah. card game. It's true. Yeah. I, I I was trying to extrapolate something from my list, but it is all <laughs> over the place. So just in terms of comparing like for like or classing, classifying things, so you prefer Audubon to Kalamala, for example. Yes. Kalamala being Fabio Lopiano's earlier design. Now, they're very, very different because it has to be Nestoria Mangione's uh, input that accounts for some of that. And Audubon is vastly, uh, well, not vastly, but considerably heavier than Kalamala is. Uh, but then again, Kalamala is area majority, and I love me some area majority. Anyway, I'm just... Uh, Rambling about the, uh, the differences there. So what what do you account for uh, some of the recency of, of your entrance for then? Because you you definitely, as much as mine is kind of geogra- uh, temporarily clustered of about a decade that accounts for most of them, yours spans from the 80s all the way to last year. Oh, well, I think we just pretty well covered it. I think some of them are just direct upgrades to ones I enjoyed already. Mm, fair enough. Do you think that this is going to continue? Like, do you do you have the optimism that that Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor, or you know, Audubon or Lords of Hellas or whatever is just waiting to be dethroned by the next better iteration? It's it's possible. Like, mm. there could be another World War II sort of Axe Alley type game that I just enjoy more. Sure, and and more people want to play it, so mm-hmm. then it would replace that stuff like that. Well, War, War Room didn't. You have played War Room. I have not. Oh, you still haven't played War Room. No. Oh, okay, sorry. I thought you had. I wish I had. <laughs> yeah, just the same way that I wish I'd played Successors Fourth Edition, which I haven't. Uh, <laughs> other people have played your copy, though, as I recall. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, all worth it then. <laughs> all right. So, so nothing too much from our list, but let's talk. I I did go back. And just look, let's talk 2016. Okay. What about it? We have Scythe. We have Terraforming Mars. We have Star Wars Rebellion. We have Mechs versus Minions. Arkham Horror, the card game. Sushi Go Party. Uh, Clank, the deck building game. Secret Hitler. Great Western Trail. A Feast for Odin. Yeah, that... <sighs> so, okay, for what it's worth, I still think... That in terms of over the period that we've been doing the show, the year after 2017 is really the big ticket. Well, um, for sure. I'm not not saying this year alone, but I'm saying if we use that as an anchor and Uh you go down, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. No. You go down the Board Game Geek uh, top 100. Yes. And you see which games are from uh, 2014 to 2018. Mm -hmm. A lot of them, like 80%. Huge games in that sector. Yeah, you're right. 
that's an impressive list in terms of market success, but in terms of games I love, there's not a lot there uh, compared to 2017. Like the first year we did this and we did our, 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 our end of year show, it was an embarrassment of riches. Gloomhaven, uh, um, Spirit Island, Sidereal Confluence, yeah, that's the Guards of Atlantis. Like, whew, like, that's a year for me, right? <laughs> In terms of, and, you know, one of them made it onto my onto my top ten. Uh, a Feast for Odin is great, don't get me wrong, but even as we've talked about it, you know, it's an iterative rather than revolutionary design. And we we both agree that it was substantially improved by its its first expansion that addresses some of its its minor shortcomings. But you're right in terms of overall market influence, 2016 is is very much a high point. Oh, and, that's wild. Yeah, it's 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 wild. Like I'm wondering if that's like I said, like the that's the sort of core area, and then just there's been such a vast build out from that time that a lot of. Uh, Producers have been able to put out games that they normally wouldn't have been able to because it, you know, brought so many more people into the the game. So that's like sort of like the golden age of of board games there, and where like now I think is hmm, a, I don't know is a great time to be a board gamer because a lot of these games are getting older. I'm seeing more and more collections going up for sale. Now is the time where you can get games. I'm wondering if this is what I was getting to earlier. It's weird. The secondary market, the overall nature of the secondary market has been in such flux over the course of time. I mean, it, it, back when there were fewer releases, it was it just seemed more stable. Things stayed in print longer. It was easier to get access to things. When I started in the hobby and I was reading about all these people, all these other nerds with their top 10 lists and what have you, you could look through them and you could reliably expect that almost all of them would be in print. And the ones that weren't in print were the glaring exception. Like somebody would say like, yeah, I really like Upfront, shame it hasn't been reprinted. Or something like that. Almost everything else was available. And it's 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 kind of, I hadn't thought about how, the extent to which any of these are in print. But looking down over my list, a lot of these are out of print. Some of them are easily available in the secondary market. Some are not easily available in the secondary market. Some, we have reason to believe that they'll be in the process of being reprinted. Some not. Well, the, the 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 whole market's changed since then. Like yeah. Back then, that that was the the sort of the template. You know, you produced a game. You every year you bring out more of them, so they'd be available. Now, it's, yeah, it's, you could like stock a shelf rather yeah, than. Yes. I, I have no idea how board game stores, stores yeah, whether yeah. they're online or in person, how they survive and deal with this. It's it's boggles the imagination. The inventory upkeep is is ludicrous. I can't, right. I can't understand it. And the extent to which it's possible, and again, this is just idle speculation about market forces, which is something I don't tend to like to do. You know, ain't much of a golden age if those market forces drive a lot of these people into bankruptcy, right? Yeah. That's another aspect of the community that, that, that needs to be taken into consideration. This is why I can see why Kickstarter exploded so much as it did, or all crowdfunding, because you're just making as many as you need. Right, you don't yeah. have to worry about offloads any the of risk this overheads. Yeah. yeah, you get interest interest free loans from the customer, and you don't have to worry about overhead. Absolutely. And I think that's that's the what that's what usually is going. You know, they're going to make so many more, and they move on to the next project because yep. they, they cannot hold the inventory. No, absolutely. Yeah, and, and and some publishers are the tragedy is is that some publishers say you know get it now or possibly never, and they don't mean it. And so as a consequence, when some publishers are very transparent, like, for example, the example I constantly give is Archim Nichapurov of Wolf Design. He's like, look, no, 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 really, we mean it. We ain't going to keep any excess copies. We So pledge or you're not going to get it. 
and people have been trained because they've been lied to, well, not lied to, because they've been told that so many times, like the gamer who cried wolf, they're like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. And then it comes out, and they're like, oh, well, how can I get my copy? You can't. And they're like, why not? It's like, well, you were warned. It's, yeah, it is a bit of a shame. And honestly, like, again, that's another aspect where, where people are like, oh, it's it's clearly a new golden age because look at all the qu- the quantity of all these releases. And it's like, yeah, but that's kind of a double-edged sword. It's 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 tricky. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't, I wouldn't quantify it under a, the number of games that come out. That's for sure. Exactly. And again, when I think of whether it's the games you would rescue from your burning house from a non-material perspective or games you'd take to a desert island, or just, you know, your, your favorite designs, I I honestly would gladly trade all the positive experiences I've had, uh, well, not all of them, uh, but many of the very positive experiences I've had over the course of the past, maybe even decade, in favor of a, of, of a lot of the other ones. Now, this doesn't mean, I'm, I'm trying not to be super elitist about this, I mean, obviously, we're, this, this podcast is already an elitist enterprise because we seek to exalt the good over the bad. That itself is an elitist project. I love the fact that there are all these high-quality new releases. Uh, and I don't know if there's anything to the fact that I've only changed my top ten once over the course of the past little while. Maybe it's just me being stubborn. Maybe I'm just completely ignorant of my own preference. I don't know, but I think this is in good faith. But it is nonetheless interesting to reflect every once in a while. True, and I- I would wonder what I would say or what I would actually do, say, if I just lost everything. Mm-hmm. How you would reconstruct a... a... Or, or not. Right. There's so many new games that come out all the time. It's Why true. would you reconstruct? Well, yeah. Well, within reason. Let's, let's be... Well, no, if we didn't have a podcast... Yes. If we were untethered to the professional obligation we have to play new stuff, I think you would reconstruct some of your old collection. Agreed. In our, in the current context, though, I could definitely understand if it all disappeared, you could just walk away. <laughs> well, especially considering that a lot of, well, not even a lot of, but several of the elements of your top ten are already in my collection anyway. Yeah, that that they, well they would both they would both have to burn down at the same time. Exactly. So look out for Huey, Dewey, or Louie in case they get an arsonist streak. That would be bad. That would be very bad. I'd cry. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. We appreciate your having decided to spend some of your precious time with us, the most valuable resources, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.